0: this episode is brought to you by our friends at rollbar check them out at rollbarcom changelog move fast and fix things like we do here at changelog catch your errors before your users do with rollbar if you're not using rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet they have a special offer for you go to rollbarcom slash changelog Sign up and integrate Rollbar to get $100 to donate to open source projects via Open Collective. Once again, rollbar.com/changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JSPartyFM. And now on to the show.
1: Hello, and welcome to another exciting JS Party. I'm your host today, Nick Neesey, and I'm joined today by Suze Hinton. Hey, hey, what's up? And K-ball. I'm back again. Welcome back. And today we're going to cover a couple of different topics. We're going to start with a great article uh, on the CSS Tricks blog called The Great Divide. Uh, Then we're going to talk about why uh, 2019 is looking like it's going to be the year of TypeScript uh, and then we're going to give some shout outs to um, people who are just doing awesome things in the community. So with that first topic let's let's start right off. So this is a uh, a blog post on CSS tricks by Chris Goyer and um, it's talking about the divide in front-end development. So uh, Ball, do you want to maybe give us a summary of of what the article is talking about?
2: Sure. So this is kind of, and this is something we've talked about before. Looking at the concepts or the separation between CSS and HTML, CSS focused folks and folks who are really JavaScript, JavaScript, JavaScript all the time, um, and kind of taking note of a, you know, he does something that that Chris does really well, where he he goes out and he just kind of talks to or reads from influencers all across the industry, and he highlights that there's really this kind of growing separation between folks who are very focused on JavaScript and perhaps very focused a little bit more on kind of traditional engineering practices, maybe higher level uh, or, or more complex computer science concepts. Uh, and those who are in what you might consider more traditional front end focused areas where there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, semantic HTML on CSS, on more, user experience-focused concepts and that that, you know, historically may have gotten glommed together a lot. You know, the, your front-end developer was doing your HTML, was doing your CSS, was doing your JavaScript, but increasingly we're seeing this separation where there's JavaScript folks and then there's HTML and CSS folks and there's more and more differences between the two and there's more and more frustration and conflict in the community over that difference.
1: Yeah, I I noticed that too. Uh and and I definitely see that personally with with what I tend to work on. I definitely would consider myself to be more in the uh doing less CSS and and HTML part and doing more kind of the logic and and moving data around part uh while still being on the front end. Uh but that hasn't always been the case. Uh, I've definitely done a lot with with HTML and CSS and I think that I can do a lot with it, but when I look at what has changed and what's coming in, in the CSS world, uh, and even with, with markup, like semantic HTML, I often have to remind myself what semantic tags are out there and uh, what might be the best way to go about doing something in CSS.
2: So I think there's a couple different aspects that we could look at here. There's one, you know, sort of this question of where is this design or this divide coming from? You know, is it... Due to the fact that the front end ecosystem as a whole is getting much more powerful and expansive. And so specialization is kind of resulting in this. Uh, Or are there other cultural aspects leading to it? You know, one of the things that I think about a lot is the relationship between design and front end development. And I think that's a place where there are kind of blurred and shifting lines, there's always been some tension between design and development as a whole. And the front end is one of the places where those two, uh, I won't say competing, but two groups with with different priorities often end up colliding and having to interact. And that where those lines are and what's considered design or what's considered development has been shifting and blurring and and moving around. You know, I think increasingly we see designers who do work in HTML and CSS. And that has resulted in some developers saying, hey, that's not real development now. And I'm not sure how much of that is because it is a feeling of needing to make those lines clear versus the fact that the paradigms are different. You know, If you think about markup and CSS, those are much more visual and structural paradigms rather than kind of logical and and imperative paradigms. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think there are different angles that we can look at for where this might be coming from. Suze, I'm curious what you have on this um, as somebody who's kind of, come, if I recall correctly, you sort of started in the HTML, CSS world and have moved more and more into pure JavaScript. Is that right?
3: Yeah, I have a lot of feelings about this, um, which I'm trying to get in order in order to actually be cohesive. But when I read this article, I had a lot of feelings. I think that's sort of where it came from because I felt that, somebody was actually accurately describing something that I've seen on social media that I've still sort of kept up to date with, even though I'm actually not a front-end developer anymore. And I even saw this in the last front-end development role that I was in a couple of years ago, um, At you know, the last product team that I worked on. I honestly think that it is mostly a cultural cause. It's mostly coming from people having different opinions and also a whole bunch of cultural gatekeeping as well. And so I think that some people um, think that certain roles should be designated to certain, um, I guess, uh, skill sets, such as, you know, you were talking about the designers with doing HTML and CSS. Um, and I think that most of it, in my opinion, honestly comes down to gatekeeping and people feeling super defensive and overwhelmed with how much front-end development, in my opinion, has expanded. And, you know, the article does address that it has expanded a lot. Um, And given that um, a bunch of us um, who are hosts on JS Party have very similar backgrounds to mine where, you know, I've been... I was basically a front-end developer for 12 or 13 years, and so I've watched this actually change. And I think it's hard for me to... I guess, understand the gatekeeping and the defensiveness, given that if you've been in the front-end field for that long, you've had a chance to, you know, get really good at HTML and CSS. And then when JavaScript became much more performant with the introduction of things like, you know, the V8 engine, you then thought, okay, well, this is the new thing that I have to learn. And then when React dropped and other front-end um, you know, uh, frameworks dropped, you're like, okay, well, this is the next thing that I have to learn. And I think that people coming into the industry now obviously don't have that sort of slow gradient of learning to the point where, you know, some of us have become full stack engineers just as, you know, um, a side effect of all of these changes. But other people coming in now have absolutely no idea whether they should specialize or whether they need to know absolutely everything. So, I mean, that's my take on it. I think it's a lot of gatekeeping defensiveness, people feeling overwhelmed, Um, but I do not, I really don't like this divergence. I don't like what I'm seeing being discussed on social media. I do not like people devaluing certain skill sets. And I am of the belief that there should be more of us in the industry who know all of these things rather than us diverging into specialization. Because I've seen the cultural issues in companies, even when we're having chats about features, where... People are coming from so many different angles of front-end development that we cannot reach agreement about things like accessibility versus developer ergonomics and things like that. And that's what's been really disappointing to me. And that's that's where I've really appreciated having this article.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I, I too would not. I, I too would like to see less of a divergence of these fields. But I'm wondering if the current state of uh, like frameworks and and just JavaScript in general is kind of helping push towards that as we. Abstract away those things like HTML and CSS uh, into a you know CSS and JS and JSX um, future. Uh, is that what's kind of pushing this divergence too? Because then you're kind of locked into the way that maybe these frameworks do things, and they are kind of standardizing on different ways. But it's still without going in, coming without coming to it from a programming background, it's a massive thing to to undertake to to learn that if you if you're not familiar with it.
2: I wonder how much of this is not actually a new divide, but rather a shifting in the lines of an existing divide. Because Hmm. I'm remembering when I first started working in the web, there was very little, I mean, jQuery was super advanced, right? That was like, whoa, we're talking advanced JavaScript here. jQuery, man, this stuff is cool. And there was a divide already between the backend engineers, the folks who were doing all of the, intensive logic and all of these sort of high level concepts and not worried so much about what the user interface looked like. And those folks who were thinking about things from a more visual and interaction perspective. And there was a lot of debate and argument and what's the right way to do interactions and should that be valued or should that be valued? It doesn't really matter what happens on the front end so long as the back end is right. Oh, but you know, it doesn't, you know, that, that whole argument played out then. And it was happening between people who self-conceptualized as front-end developers and people who self-conceptualized as back-end developers. Today, due to a number of factors, much more of the application logic is happening in what is now called the front-end, but is still logic, code, not necessarily thinking about user experience or visualization. And we're having what sounds very similar in terms of interaction, but now it's between two sets of people who both identify as front-end developers because now all of that user experience, independent logic or, or various things is happening in the front-end.
1: And David Poindexter in the chat points out that you used to have front-end and back-end, but now we have front-ends uh, that have their own back-ends that are also on the front-end and then a back-end as well. So things have gotten a lot more complex uh, and that that definitely could be contributing to this.
2: I think it's worth looking at the different uh, frameworks that have risen to, risen to prominence and the ways in which they uh, have their own cultures and the, they have the cultures that they're coming out of and then they also have the cultures which uh, have sort of sprung up around them in the open source community. So if we think about our top three uh javascript frameworks of the day we have react angular and Vue, and both react and angular are coming out of companies that have a reputation of being very much engineering first and engineering driven and not having as much emphasis at least in the cultural side on user interface on user-centered design on any of these types of things and perhaps not coincidentally the frameworks themselves are extremely complex in terms of the concepts required, especially Angular, but I think React as well. React has a lot of emphasis on pretty programming-centric, very CSE you know, concepts around functional programming and various other things that have, for uh, you know, maybe intentionally, maybe not, fostered very communities that perhaps don't uh, or that exacerbate this divide. And if you look at Vue.js as the third of these, it's not coming out of one of those companies. In fact, the inventor is a designer or was a designer by background. And I find that the Vue community has much less of this sort of divide. And it's much easier for designers and more traditional user experience and front, you know, older school front end folks to get into. And that attitudes around it are a little bit different as well. So I think there's you know this is not this is not necessarily a something that is manifest destiny. This is something that is very much coming out of the cultures around these particular projects and the cultures that they are developed in and have continued to be developed in.
3: I totally agree with what you're saying there. I've definitely seen the same patterns just anecdotally just based on discussions and things like that and I've I've also just seen outright rejections to learn something that is fundamentally tied to producing quality work as a result if that makes sense. So for example, you know, I, I I know of developers who know React and all of the internals and how it works and all of these things. And I think it's great to sort of drill deep on something you you really really love and you're excited about. But when you can use React mostly without knowing any of these things. The framework has been designed so that you shouldn't need to know details about the framework in order to use it effectively. And if you do need to know those details, then it sounds like the framework's not actually doing its job. And and so what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is I see them drill deep on these topics and sort of try to you know, and I'm not sure where that personal, um, you know, motivation comes from. Sometimes it's just they're really interested. Sometimes they're trying to make themselves look invaluable, um, and that they know details, or it's just a way for them to feel like they know a lot of really technical stuff and bolster their their feelings about um, them as a developer. But then I see these same developers outright re- reject learning something such as semantic HTML or accessibility concepts, or you know how to create manageable CSS systems when that. In my opinion, because I know that these are all really just opinions. at the end of the day, that's very, very important to know. and it does inherently affect the quality of the work that you do. And so I, I guess, like I'm confused as to why these cultural things happen because a lot of the time it takes you away from the the actual skills that um that uh, have already been proven to be valuable in the field,
1: yeah. Definitely. So, what what do you see as a uh, possible solution to this? Is there one even?
3: I think what we're going through right now is we don't really because this this you know landscape has changed so rapidly. I feel that we don't have an established set of best practices, and this is exactly what this article is getting at: is that you know do we need to def- redefine what a front end developer is and you know you see those you see those big diagrams people make just to sort of show like the issue at hand which is oh like these days you need to know all of these things and they just plot out all of the logos of all the libraries and the different css things and things like that just to show the sheer amount of things you need to learn however if we had something that is not specific you know library based but we had general foundational building blocks of front-end development, and we can even look at platforms such as front-end masters or um, Pluralsight or any kind of education coding, um, you know, courses that try to break that down to the fundamental levels, then maybe we'll be able to establish a general idea of, you know, At the end of the day, we're producing software for users. And if users are having a terrible experience using the software we're creating, then we're clearly not focusing on the right things. So, you know, I would rather we got more back to a holistic way of looking at it rather than the developer ergonomics way of looking at it. And I I honestly think that even just looking at the current educational systems there might actually give us some hints on where to get started.
2: I love that. There's a concept that was very deeply embedded in the development of the web that I feel like we've kind of forgotten as an industry, which is the principle of least power. Yes. There's, uh, and for, for those who, who may not be super familiar with it, the idea is that to, we should use the least powerful language available to us that is sufficient to express whatever we're trying to do. So if we have something that is expressible purely in static markup, we should use static markup to do it, not a full-featured pre. Uh, programming language that can then do it. Um, you know, if we have something that requires a little bit more, maybe it needs CSS uh, because it's doing something. We should layer that on, and only do the things that we absolutely need. All the power of a fully featured programming language in that language. And the thinking behind this is what I think is is commonly missed. We, you know, the thinking behind this is the simpler the expression, the more. Tricks, analysis, other things we can do automatically with it, right? If you have something that is purely markup, the things that we can do in terms of statically analyzing that and having mach- machines do things to it and transform it and uh, you know, do all sorts of stuff is phenomenal. By the time you get to JavaScript, the amount of static analysis we can do and the amount of things that, for example, you know, Google's search crawler or whatever, like that we our ability to do things with that um, that don't require a human drops dramatically. And we've kind of gone around to another direction uh, where, you know, the industry at large is kind of throw in a place of throw as much power at it as possible. You know, templating languages don't let you do everything that JavaScript is. So let's actually, you know, wrap up all of JavaScript in something that sort of looks like a templating language and call it JSX because you never know when you're going to need all that power. And I think, you know, that is harming us along many dimensions, and it is, uh, you know, creating. You know, the other thing that the principle of least power lets you do is say, "Hey, there's a whole lot of stuff that you can express without having to understand all of those different things as well."
3: Yeah, I definitely agree with that, and I think that the the motivation behind this probably comes from trying to find that magic bullet. And also, if you are the most interested in JavaScript, you're going to try your hardest to ensure that everything has to be done in JavaScript as a result, which is just like a flawed way of thinking.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, but I'm wondering if maybe some of the thinking behind that is, is, um, is like sticking to those bears, like the HTML, like semantic HTML and uh, just straight markup. Uh, is that... The right approach, or are they trying to create a uh, an abstraction that will make it easier for doing all of this as, um, autom- in an automated way?
3: Yeah, Nick, I think that that is definitely part of a lot of people's motivations for sure. I think what bothers me the most about where we've gotten to in the state of things is that the abstractions we're making are le- just dropping a lot of things on the floor. That have actually caused the quality of of what it's outputting to be a lot lower than if we actually coded it ourselves, if that makes sense. And what I worry totally. about is that we're going to spend way more time debugging what it's output because we didn't have that foundational understanding of what is what is actually quality output in the first place if that makes sense. And so you know if you design, and I, I mean i'm I'm just making this a very generic statement. I don't necessarily think that there are like lots of framework authors or library authors out there who don't have the foundations of things like semantic html for example but if you do not have that foundation and you design tools that output things that have those gaps that has a multiplier effect in our industry and then we we see just the general quality of things degrade if that's not done properly. So I'm excited about the idea of of people trying to make this easy and trying to create abstractions because making a web page is actually complex, even if you are doing it with just HTML and CSS. There are a lot of things you need to think about. But I think we really need to step back and value the um value a lot of the sort of like, I guess, like older, you know, um, I guess, crafts of the, the industry before you can actually start automating it.
2: The thing I want to highlight on the principle of least power is uh, something I'm going to sort of quote around from Tim Berners-Lee's explanation of that, which is he's he's saying, you know, the idea of doing this declarative form allows the data that you're putting there to be analyzed in ways that are never dreamed of by its creators. So by moving everything into JavaScript, we give the creators more power but at the cost of taking away that power from other people who might want to interpret that data. And that plays out very directly in things like accessibility. You know, if something is all markup, then somebody who cares very deeply about markup can worry, or about accessibility, can worry about the right way to interpret that markup to make it accessible. Uh, And that can vary widely by device. You know, different devices might interact with that in a different way. When you move it into JavaScript, now suddenly the creator has to think about all the possible ways that somebody might want to read and access this data. And I can guarantee you that most creators don't have in their minds all of those accessibility things. I certainly don't. I don't deal with it every day. I'd far rather let somebody who deals with it every day be able to interpret my stuff and make it work well for them.
3: I agree with that. I think that people don't really have some people don't have a full appreciation for just how beautifully HTML like um markup or XML actually works when it comes to these hidden details and and even just things that help them every single day. And so you know, being you know, even just browser hooks, such as being able to tap around a page and things like that, all of that stuff, is already there and working and very powerful and I don't and I think that people will try and pave over that now and it doesn't actually make a lot of sense to me.
0: This episode is brought to you by Raygun, who just launched their APM service. It was built with the developer and DevOps in mind. They're leading with first-class support for .NET apps, also available as an Azure app service, and have plans to support .NET Core, followed by Java and Ruby in the near future. After doing a ton of competitive research between the current APM providers, where Raygun APM excels is the level of detail they're surfacing. New Relic and AppDynamics, for example, are more business oriented where raygun has been built for developers and devops the level of detail provided in the traces are amazing the flame charts are awesome and allows you to actively solve problems and dramatically boost your team's efficiency when diagnosing problems deep dive into root cause with automatic links back to source for an unbeatable issue resolution workflow learn more and get started at raygun.com apm Once again, Raygun.com slash APM.
1: All right, we're back. And in this next segment, uh, I'm going to uh, be talking with the panelists about uh, why 2019 just might be the year of TypeScript. Now, TypeScript has been around since uh, 2012, I think, uh, and I've been a big fan of it, but that's um, just been, well, not just been me, but uh, I've, I've been a big fan and proponent of it for a while now. Uh, I wasn't always, but it seems like this year with uh, the begin, the end of last year and just the beginning of this year, TypeScript is just exploding, and uh, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit and, and see where... Why, why that is, and, and what we think may be coming up next. So, um, with that, I think that the big thing that kicked off this year of TypeScript uh, might have come in August of last year when uh, Babel added support for TypeScript.
2: Yeah, that definitely made a huge difference because you know, one of the things that was holding folks back, uh, you know, it, we had a conversation with Laurie Voss of NPM about this, and he he sort of highlighted one interesting thing, which he said, you know, if you're using a build system anyway, maybe JavaScript isn't the language you want to be using, right? A lot of the value of JavaScript was you could just write code and it would just work. But by the time you're using a build system, maybe you want to explore some other things with some other uh, additional power. Well, folks were using a build system, but it was Babel based and they didn't want to lose some of the other things that they had from Babel. Uh, But once you could switch you know, flip the switch, keep using your same build system, but start using TypeScript. And and I think TypeScript facilitates this by being very incremental. You can adopt just types. You don't have to adopt all sorts of other stuff. It's a superset of JavaScript. You don't have to refactor your whole application. Uh, this made the road to experimenting with and using TypeScript so much smoother. And so I think, yeah, that was, that was probably, I mean, it would be interesting to see if there was a graph somewhere of TypeScript use, but I bet it, that was a kink in the curve.
1: Mm -hmm. And yeah, so kind of talking about what the TypeScript compiler does, it does kind of three main things. It does the type checking where it will look at your annotations and the types that it can infer. And then it will give you warnings based on that if there are any. And then from there, it will strip out all of the type annotations. So you're left with just the JavaScript code uh, or the ES next code. And then it will transform that uh, from like tomorrow's JS to today's JS or ES5 or somewhere in, in between there. And work, and so what Babel, adding support for this does is it allows it to, uh, it allows Babel to understand and be able to strip out those type annotations during its build process, so that it can treat that like a JavaScript code that it would run through Babel in any other way. But it's not doing anything in terms of type checking, so you're still relying on uh, TypeScript and specifically probably the TypeScript language service and plugins for your editor of choice uh, for all of that. But uh, it, it's doing all of that um, and, and it's enabling that through Babel now so that you don't have to adopt a whole new build chain to be able to support TypeScript. You can just continue building things the same way that you've been building them along with the way that you might build uh, SAS or uh, anything else and run it through the same uh, Webpack flow or, or Babel flow to get to the same result. But just with TypeScript instead.
3: It's so funny that you say that because like, I had the opposite experience of how I got introduced to TypeScript, which was like the gateway drug for me was I wanted a, a one-liner, no-config transpiler. Um, and I wasn't even writing TypeScript because, as you said, you can just incrementally kind of like ease into TypeScript. And so I was just really using it to transpile my ES6 to ES5 by running <laughs> just the TypeScript command. <laughs> and then I was like, actually, this seems kind of cool. Maybe I'll just add some types. And I was like, oh, OK, yeah, I, I understand what a deeply <laughs> thought out and high quality uh, superset this is now.
1: <laughs> but Cable, to your point with um, w- with running a compiler... Anyway, that is pretty much what everyone is doing now. And that was the the realization that I came to when I uh, finally relented and and decided that TypeScript was something that I would get behind. Uh, Because I was like, I, I just like pure JS. I want things to just run and I want it to be simple and fun. But man, look at those cool ES6 features that are coming out. I really want to be able to use those too. And so I have to run a compiler anyway. And then being able to add in those types, I didn't really understand why... I would want those because I just think of Java and I hated working with Java. Um, <laughs> but it, when I saw it as as less of a completely different language, uh, because it's not, it's just JavaScript with types and more of a way to self-document my code and a way to make my editor smarter about what I was writing, then I really started uh, adopting it and
3: and running with it. What is the feature of TypeScript um, like as the 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 actual superset itself? What was it that got you thinking? Oh, okay, I get it. This is really really nice. Because for me, it was interfaces, uh, which kind of reminded me of C structs. And the interfaces for me were what made me feel like immediately my code's not only going to be better organized, but it's also going to be better at self-documenting itself too. But I'm curious about what it was for other people as to what got them into sort of really really liking it. So I think that when I first started playing
1: with it, uh, it was in 2013, I think, and so that was before ES5 or sorry ES6 came out, ES2015, uh, and all of those features. And so I think that when I first started looking at it, it was not something that I liked at all because it had this weird module thing that they've since renamed to namespaces uh, that I, I didn't really understand. And then uh, they had like special ways of working with AMD code or CommonJS, and it, it just seemed really weird to me. Uh, but then when they started getting behind ES6 and the the proposals in there and going that route, things started to make more sense to me. And, and yeah, totally interfaces were the thing that, that um, really got me hooked. And I think from a, a, a like a more direct route, it was um, the being able to specifically state what a method should accept as arguments and what it's going to return. And I saw that as, wow, I can just document this. And it's like js.comments, but it's just in the code. And now look at all of these unit tests that I don't have to write. Because if I just rely completely on the type system uh, warning me if I'm not passing the right things to it, then I don't have to worry about checking to make sure that I pass the right arguments.
2: So I have to admit, I'm not actually using TypeScript yet. It is number one on my list of things to learn for the year. Uh, but I'm not using it yet. But I will tell you what, what triggered me over into saying this is number one. I'm actually gonna to make the jump and start using it was um, nothing related to TypeScript itself, really. Um, you know, I've been in uh, what I think of as duck typed or, or loosely typed languages for a long time. You know, Ruby and Python and JavaScript are kind of my go tos. Um, and I've been working on a project for the last uh, not that long. Uh, using Go and Go has types and particularly for working in a project where I didn't build it from scratch or, and now I'm building a new one from scratch, but, you know, working in projects where uh, perhaps, you know, you're expecting to bring in new folks or things like that, like the discoverability aspect of having types in there and the, the ability to sort of, you know, I'm working with a new library that I'm not very familiar with and it tells me when I'm using it wrong. Like, that's so cool. <laughs> and, you know, I found it, it, it made the learning curve and the, um, sort of feeling of security without having to write a million unit tests, um, uh, much more powerful. And you know, especially <laughs> when working with things that are potentially hard to unit test because they're working with third party libraries and I'm still learning how those libraries are working. Like having those, those types in there was just, I don't know, it, it made it way easier to get started and be productive. So that got me thinking, hey, you know, this duck typing thing that I've been so used to and where I got frustrated when I was doing stuff with flow and whatever, like maybe I should just like bite the bullet and get over the learning curve, especially now that TypeScript, the recent stuff, they have ability to do like smarter things with multi-typed uh, or functions that take multiple types and, and that sort of thing. Like this stuff is pretty cool.
3: it's so funny because it makes me think of like, you know, when you say this to anyone who is more used to strongly typed language systems, you you know, you see them laughing because like we think this stuff is amazing (laughs) because we have never, ever had it. And it's like, oh my goodness, this feels so good. And it is very funny when you do come into um, the web development or like just programming in general through JavaScript and then... It's just amazing when you've never actually known a system like that before.
1: (laughs) I was going to say the exact same thing. My Java friends laugh at me when I'm
2: like, this is the coolest thing. Look, it knows what I want. (laughs) (laughs) But I think what what is really nice about the modern era of typed languages, you know, thinking about things like TypeScript and Go and stuff like that, is that they appear to accomplish That level of support without the feeling of being strangled in a straitjacket that I always felt when I was trying to code in Java or something like that?
1: Precisely. I I totally agree with that. They're not really, it's not like trying to take the the static type system of another language and bring it to the web. It's trying to build a type system on top of a language that has never had types before and allowing you to have that structure, but also to uh, bypass it when you really need to. But that's becoming less and less of a of a thing that you need to do, uh, as as types have been getting smarter and things like conditional types and more complex generics have have taken hold, you can really uh, it, it makes it really hard to justify using the any key, for example, or the any type. So uh, it seems like everyone's New Year's resolution uh, with with Babel so now supporting TypeScript, and I think Create React App now giving you that as a flag, so you can start new projects with React. In that way, uh, with TypeScript, I think that a lot of people's New Year's resolutions was to learn TypeScript this year. And it seems like uh, a lot of the uh, projects are listening as well. So there are three big projects that I wanted to highlight that are uh, have announced that they're moving to TypeScript. The first one, uh, and I think the, the oldest news, is Vue moving to TypeScript. So Vue 3 uh, will be using TypeScript. But uh, more recently, Jest is moving to TypeScript as well as Yarn. I think that was just announced today. Uh, so the, those are two pretty big projects uh, that are both from uh, Facebook or have some origin at Facebook, which is really interesting because uh, Facebook also has the competing type language, I guess, for, for JavaScript and that's Flow. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting to see these two projects move in that way.
2: Yeah, and th- there was an article that I uh, came across this week that is going out in my newsletter um, around someone moving from flow to typescript and they highlighted a number of things and they pointed out some places where flow seemed better, some places where typescript seemed better, but the big thing that was showing up and what I suspect is one of the reasons behind more and more of these uh, projects moving to typescript was community adoption and support. You know, Mm -hmm. the, um, Uh, existing or the number of public uh, types files in, um, shoot, what's it called for TypeScript? Um, Definitely typed. Indefinitely typed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Dramatically outweighs the number of existing public flow stuff, which means that it's more and more possible to take advantage of types end-to-end through um, not only your project, but all of the dependencies that you are pulling in. Um, and that the, you know, community support in terms of people being able to help you out if you have questions is much higher. So, you know, it's, it seems to have reached critical mass and that brings a whole slew of benefits in and of itself that Flow may have never gotten to.
1: Yeah. And in that article, uh, it also posts or it has a link to a comment, um, I forget on what project, oh, on Flow, uh, about having public milestones and a Facebook developer uh, responds to that with, um, noting that the Facebook has been very inward facing with flow and working on performance and hasn't really been keeping up with the full-time job of community engagement and and understanding. Whereas TypeScript, uh, like you said, has taken over with, uh, its community support and, and the third party, uh, typings available has just skyrocketed. And I think that's in part two, it's definitely, definitely typed (laughs) that, uh, that has facilitated that, but also kind of the adoption of that through the at types NPM user uh, that, that TypeScript uses to to make it easier to pull in those types automatically.
2: I saw uh, Laurie Voss tweeted a, uh, a teaser, essentially saying, you know, he, he in some talks last year was highlighting that like 40 plus percent of folks responding to the NPM survey were saying they were using TypeScript. Well, apparently in the, the next survey, which is not yet published, but has been taken, and that's up to 62% of users who respond to NPM survey are using TypeScript in some form or another. That's incredible penetration.
3: That's much higher than I expected it to be for sure.
2: And we've seen similar numbers uh, with things like the state of
1: JS survey. So uh, there, it's definitely not a, an anomaly. Their TypeScript has adoption has been skyrocketing and going up, um, but now we're seeing more prominent with these with these um, projects going to TypeScript. Uh, we're seeing more support for that and people getting behind that. So I think it's less likely that TypeScript is going anywhere anytime soon, uh, which is great news. Uh, but then we're also seeing uh, native TypeScript support being added to uh, possibly the future of npm. Uh, so the, there was a tweet by um, Maybe Cats on Twitter. Uh, about Tink, which is the uh, proposed next generation CLI for npm, supporting uh, TypeScript out of the box, and so you can just point it to a TypeScript file and with no configuration, it will be able to run that.
2: Yeah, and I think you know this is penetrating into folks' consciousness. Like I, I wrote a uh, beginning of the year like, "What should you learn in front end development?" post, and I had TypeScript as my number one. And I think if I'd done that two years ago, people would have laughed me out of the house. Right? It would have been like, "What are you talking about?" Oh, that, that, why would I learn TypeScript? And this year, like that was probably the most, uh, you know, I, most viral post I've written in a long time. Like folks were all about that. So I think, you know, this idea that TypeScript, you know, if you're not already using it, you should be using it soon. You should be learning it. It is starting to become just what people do.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that, um, another thing that we've learned from surveys is is that, uh, VS Code has just skyrocketed in popularity as well. And that's built with TypeScript and uh, uses TypeScript for inference on TypeScript projects and JS projects. Uh, so it uses that language server built in. Uh, and I think that that might be contributing to it as well because it's kind of free marketing for TypeScript. When you bring up your JavaScript project in VS Code and it starts giving you hints uh, on things that it's trying to infer, it's just kind of giving you a small taste of what your TypeScript future could be, which is kind of Genius marketing, I guess.
2: Though, of course, you can integrate that TypeScript server into uh, other editors. And if you're like me and you steal Nick Nisi's Vim config, you get it for free.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'm team Vim too. That's why I laughed.
1: Why why didn't we talk about Vim on this episode?
2: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You you notice what I did there. I brought it in. Yeah, definitely.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We could have a uh, top Vim plugins for JavaScript development as a segment maybe in the future.
2: <laughs> so
3: many should, opinions. should probably
2: <laughs> survey the users as well. You know, I think the the penetration of Vim among the panelists is probably way higher than among <laughs> listeners. I could be wrong. Could be wrong. Uh, so,
1: Sue, are you currently using TypeScript right now? I'm actually not sure.
3: Uh, it depends on are you currently using TypeScript right now. That's usually a complicated question for me because I don't work on a product team anymore. Uh, um, I'm actually in the Process though of rewriting an old JavaScript hardware library it was actually one of the first libraries I ever wrote, so uh, it was not fantastic code. Um, and so it's been sort of a it's been a dream of mine to rewrite it, just you know, to see how much I've learned since then. But I thought that it would be perfect for me to also rewrite it in TypeScript because it is in hardware things have to be very exactly correct at all times. It is very unforgiving. And I feel that TypeScript would give my code and my functionality and the architecture the structure that it really needs so that I can maintain this library a lot easier um, going forward. So I'm very excited to do that. I'm sort of breaking things out into modules. I'm creating like a billion interfaces because of the different, I guess, signatures and shapes um, of different, um, I guess, uh, payloads that you're sending over to the device and things like that. So that's been really, really exciting and probably not the first use of TypeScript that comes to mind for a lot of JavaScript developers. But again, like I'm usually the edge case here. So that's how I've been using it recently.
1: Very cool. So do you see yourself using it more in the future uh, in 2019?
3: Yeah, I would very much like to. I'm mostly doing this specific TypeScript project because it's sort of, it's low risk. You know, I'm just sort of, once I'm happy with it, then I will be re-releasing a new version of it. I'm really doing it to teach myself TypeScript on a a deeper level where I don't have a hard deadline to hit, if that makes sense. So yeah, I'm I'm basically doing this so that going forward, I will just automatically write all of my JavaScript and TypeScript hopefully going forward.
1: And Cable, it's on your things to learn in 2019. So I assume that uh, the same goes for you.
2: Yep. It's on my things to learn. Um, I will probably start with doing a play project with it rather than trying to pull it into one of my client projects whole hog uh, that's existing. But um, yeah, definitely is something that I anticipate by the end of 2019, most or all of my new projects will be using TypeScript.
3: Nice. Same with me,
1: but that's been the same for a while. So <laughs>
3: <laughs> i feel like you're the typescript person uh out of all the hosts on this podcast for sure <laughs> i'm constantly
1: trying to make it a ts
2: party <laughs> you already have a ts party <laughs>
0: This episode is brought to you by our search partners at Algolia. Algolia is a powerful search as a service solution, and it's easy to integrate and use with API clients, UI libraries, and even pre built integrations. If you've ever searched, Hacker News, Teespring, Medium, Twitch, or even Product Hunt. Then you've experienced the search results of Algolia's search API. We even use Algolia here, all the power of our search. We're able to fine tune our indexing, gain insights from search patterns, as well as analytics. We can create custom query rules to influence our content's ranking behavior. We have full control. It's awesome, and we love it. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free, or learn more by going to Algolia.com. That's A-L-G-O-L-I-A dot com.
1: And we're back. So for this third segment, uh, we thought we would shout out to uh, some of the people who are doing amazing things in the community um, and deserve to be recognized. So, with that, uh, Suze, do you want to go first?
3: Yeah. So, my friend Monica uh, joined the Magenta team at Google recently. And I just think she's one of the most brilliant developers because she knows so much stuff about so many things. And then, on top of that, she's incredibly good at producing really, uh, I guess, like um, interactive and very delightful experiences. And so, um, Herself, along with the rest of the Magenta team at Google, have been creating some awesome demos. And just so you know, like, um, Magenta is like a uh, basically like a JavaScript machine learning um, project that has been made um, at Google. And so, if you go to magenta.tensorflow.org/demos. Um, they have some really, really cool stuff that people have made, and then there's also a bunch of stuff from Monica as well because she's kicking butt. <laughs> so I wanted to just give a special shout out to Monica and the, the the rest of the lovely folks at Magenta. If you want to see cool machine learning demos in the browser, very cool. Yeah, and Monica
1: is not Waldorf on Twitter.
3: Oh
2: yes, yes, exactly.
1: I have not heard of Magenta, so I'm really excited to to look at this.
2: Yay! Oh, yeah, I hadn't either. That looks interesting. Do you want to call out any particular of the demos she's done, or?
3: Yeah, I really like uh, Tenori. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, um, Teneri, Tenori. Tenori, um, which is basically generating drum sequence patterns when you hit improvise, um, and also her magic sketch pad is really cute as well. And I think that's using David Ha, um, David Ha's work, who was working on um basically like training a model how to actually do sketching based on like thousands of human sketches fed into the system
2: awesome tenori was the drum thing and what was the other one
3: after tenori i was like trying to find tenori. the magic oh yeah magic sketch pad which is at the top of the feature all right yeah these look cool awesome. yeah so i think the Magenta, the the whole like goal of Magenta is to sort of show the more creative use of machine learning. You know, I know a lot of machine learning has been used for things like profit or surveillance and things like that. And I really like that this is the idea is trying to bring this more over to the creative side of things. And I'm a huge fan of creative coding. So I think that is really cool.
2: The
1: sketchpad is so fun. <laughs>
2: yeah. All right. We got to get, I got to turn it off because otherwise I'll be too distracted for the rest of this call. That looks really cool. I'm going to definitely check those out.
1: Um, Awesome. Who's next? Uh, I'll go next. And um, the, the one I wanted to call out was Dan Abramoff. Uh, So he is uh, very good at um, speaking or, or teaching things. I think, I think that I first watched his Redux videos uh, and you, but he basically has you build Redux from scratch in a series of short videos and it was really great. Uh, but he started a blog called overreacted.io and, uh, it's just really great, really great writing, uh, a lot of information that's very informative and, uh, very educational that I've learned a lot from. And I particularly liked his things. I don't know as of 2018, it was just so nice seeing, uh, somebody like Dan, um, calling out all of these things that he doesn't know. And Uh, you know, he, because we have this celebrity in, in JS, uh, it's good to see that uh, someone like him doesn't, there's a lot of things that he, that he doesn't know. And he's very open about that uh, and things that he needs to learn and brush up on. So I I really appreciate that. um, And and using that as something that we can all learn from.
2: Yeah. I love how humble and outgoing he is at the same time, right? Like a lot of times the react community uh, can be, um, shall we say, a little bit dismissive of folks outside of the community. And he is exactly the opposite of that. He's, you know, anytime there's something, I see a conversation he's in on Twitter around like something that isn't working right. He's always trying to understand where people are having challenges and how they can bridge that and how they can bridge out that communities. Like, he is a an incredible role model when it comes to trying to bridge that great divide that we talked about in the first segment.
3: Yeah, I was actually about to say he seems like um one of the people that can be the antidote to that kind of thing. So it was it was pretty refreshing. All right.
2: I'll do a a couple shout-outs as well. Um, and I'm gonna focus on potentially coming the other way on that great divide. So this podcast is focused on JavaScript, but I think we have a lot of folks who are in the front end world, and there is so much incredibly powerful stuff going on in the CSS side of things, especially when you look at things like CSS grid. But there's there's lots of different other things. And so I wanna call out two women who do an incredible job at teaching and explaining concepts in CSS. So the first one I want to call out is Jen Simmons. She works, I believe, at Mozilla. I think she's a developer advocate there, but she does both articles, but particularly she has this YouTube channel called Layoutland, where she just walks through all sorts of things related to CSS layout. Uh, She's a great teacher. And I think somebody that you know is well worth your attention as you start to look at what can I actually do with this modern CSS, which is just incredibly powerful. The other person I want to call out is Rachel Andrew. Rachel Andrew is um, she's one of the people who was responsible for getting the CSS Grid spec finalized and going through and doing all sorts of stuff. She did tons of advocacy. She's got. Uh, you know, a couple different websites she's involved with. um, What is it? Grid by Example, I think is what she started that does a bunch of CSS grid stuff. But she's also now the editor-in-chief at Smashing Magazine. And she has written a series of just phenomenal articles talking about and explaining different parts of CSS, both the new parts of CSS and the old. And so, you know, I think, you know, essentially every article I see that she's written, I'm just blown away by You know, she's, does incredible work. She's very good at explaining both how to use CSS, but also the thinking behind it and understanding and understanding like what is the browser actually doing to lay these things out? Um, So definitely want to call her out. And then one just quick throwaway, uh, CSS Tricks recently redid their layout and their new layout is super sweet. It's just, it's awesome. I love it.
3: It does look really nice, Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think that that talking about the Great Divide before, I think it's excellent that you shared some CSS resources, because I think that if somebody is explaining these concepts really well, then there's no reason why we can't go out and learn those kind of things, especially if they're gaps.
1: Totally. Well, thank you very much for um, giving us those great recommendations. And you, the listeners, if you have any recommendations on people doing amazing things, uh, reach out and let us know. So thanks for the great discussion on, uh, the great divide and what, um, what some of the potential problems are in, uh, the front end landscape for today and maybe how we can solve those as well as for a trip, uh, into TypeScript. And, uh, it sounds like we're all very excited about that going forward and we'll probably be, um, playing with it and talking about it more in the future. Uh, and then, yeah, just, um, there are great people doing amazing things in the community and we like to, to highlight them here at JS Party and uh, would like to know more. So uh, reach out to us. Uh, thanks, and we'll see you next week.
0: All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor, share this show with a friend, or us not snap a podcast, go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno cloud servers. Head to Leno.com slash Changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at Changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.
1: I'm Tim Smith, and my show Away From Keyboard explores the human side of creative work. You'll hear stories sometimes deeply personal about
2: the triumphs and struggles of doing what you love. I got really depressed last year, and the reason it was so hard is because basically everything culminated at once. All these things I'd been avoiding, all these things I'd swept under the rug, they all
1: came out at once. New episodes premiere every other Wednesday. Find the show at changelog.com AFK, or wherever you you listen to podcasts.